Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering education at all levels. There's a teaching method that seems to be spreading by word of mouth and via social media these days. It's an approach called thinking classrooms. And if you search for that phrase on, say, TikTok or YouTube, you'll see teachers holding up a copy of this teaching book and explaining how they have tried the ideas and want to share them. This grassroots interest has made the book an unusual bestseller for a how-to book about teaching. The full title of the book? Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics, Grades K-12. 14 Teaching Practices for Enhancing Learning. Not exactly the formula for a title that usually does so well. And since this book was released, which was just a couple years ago, it has sold more than 200,000 copies, according to the publisher. And it's being translated into a dozen languages. All this interest made me curious about what is going on here. So I reached out to the author, Peter Lilladal, who is a professor of mathematics education at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. And as I learned, the book is the result of a 20-year research quest to figure out how to get students more engaged in classes. Not just in math classes, but in all kinds of teaching. It all started when Peter was invited to sit in in a classroom where the teacher wanted some advice. But I was hanging out in a middle school math classroom, uh, watching a teacher trying to implement some problem-based learning, um, and willfully so. Like, she was so determined to make this work. Um, and this was a good teacher. This is a well-respected uh, teacher, respected by her peers, respected by her administration, respected by parents and kids. And she's trying to make this work in a middle school math classroom. And it's not working. Like, and, and, and we, we tried it three times. Same kids. And every time it got worse. And, uh, and then... After we gave up on that, or she gave up on that, uh, I gave up on it too, I, to be honest. Um, she, I, I asked if I could just stick around and watch her teach on like her regular way of teaching. And I sat in that room for three days just watching her teach and watching, more importantly, watching what the students were doing. And on the third day, I was struck by this epiphany that, that at no point in the three days that I'd been sitting there, had I seen the students do any thinking. And that's, by the way, that's, that's, I just want to pause there for a minute because that's, that's kind of harsh sounding. And again, I know you, we're not trying to call out any one teacher because the way you describe this scene in your book, it's like, just to, can we just be clear for a second? Like the kind of thing she was doing was going up to the board. Well, if, could you say it? Like she was doing, like the kids were in a, in desks. She's at the board. This is not to say that the kids weren't busy. There was lots of activity, right? She was teaching from the front of the room. She was writing things on the board. The kids were copying things. They were writing notes. They were doing worksheets. There was some collaboration here and there. There was stuff happening. But the students were never really being asked to think. And and, And it struck me that this is a problem. Because thinking is a necessary precursor to learning, right? If the students are not thinking, they're not learning. 
and there, yeah, there's all kinds of learning science that you go into that, that we've talked about on this, on this podcast over the time too. Like this is actually what makes learning work is that, uh, your brain changes, your brain, you're, you're doing something. And then it, it grew outward from there to sort of say, okay, like, is this a, a uniquely Jane problem, right? That was her name. Like, is that just in this classroom? I just happened to stumble into the one classroom on the planet where kids are not thinking. Um, so I stitched together a journey into 40 different classrooms in 40 different schools. And I was following this thread of good teacher because that's how I got recommendations for classrooms. And it's also how teachers were willing to let me into their classrooms, me sending them an email and saying, hey, so-and-so says you're a good teacher. Can I come in and, and watch you teach? Um, and then as I moved through these classrooms, and because I was following this thread of good teacher, I was in kindergarten classrooms all the way up to like AP calculus. I was in, um, I was in private schools, public schools, French schools, English schools, because we have two languages in Canada. I was in inner city schools, rural schools, low socioeconomic, high socioeconomic. Like I was, I saw a lot of diversity, a lot of diverse settings. And yet everywhere I went, I saw the exact same thing. Kids not thinking, right? And, and that is a problem. Uh, and again, these were well-respected teachers. They were good teachers, and, and I started to realize that this is not a Jane problem. This is, this is a systemic phenomenon. This is embedded within the very systems of school. And, uh, and th something has to change. I mean, it's a, it's a really fascinating, you know, uh, insight after you sit through the good teachers, 40 different teachers. And I wanted to, there was one thing you mentioned that there's something you saw that you end up breaking down into five behaviors you described as you watch these students um, in all these varying, you know, good teachers. But there were five behaviors that I think you, it, maybe you didn't coin it, but there's this word studenting, studenting, which I, I think is a fascinating word. So they were doing something, but it, as you say, most of the time they weren't thinking. So what, but they were doing something. So what were these five things you did see them doing, the students? Okay. So, at this point in the research, I, I just had, like, it was still just a sense, right? That I, what I was seeing was not conducive to thinking. They weren't thinking. And then I decided I needed to document in this, this in some way. So then I went back into 15 of these classrooms, and I just was determined to try to answer two questions. Question number one, is it actually true that the students are not thinking? Like, that was my sense, but can I document this? Can I evidence this in some way? Uh, and question number two, if they aren't thinking, then what is it that they're doing? Because they got to be doing something. So dive back into these classrooms, spend tons of time watching students, listening to students, talking to students, trying to understand what it is they're doing. That, that initial research resulted in a confirmation of what I had been observing, that in fact, 80% of students were doing no thinking whatsoever. So these are middle school math students. No, no. At this point, this is K to 12. Okay. Sorry. It's all over the, sorry. All over it's the, all over the map now. Right. Okay. Um, and, and they're not thinking 80% are not thinking 20% are, but then again, only for 20% of the time, not that they wouldn't think for longer, but that's all the time they were being given. Right. They were being keep, kept busy doing other activities that didn't require thinking. So that sort of answered the first question. So then on to the second question, what were they doing? 
And, and what you refer to there, I adopted this terminology of studenting. It comes from an American researcher named Funstermacher. Um, and Funstermacher, what he, what he was doing was he was trying to find an analog to teaching, right? So, so teachers do a lot more stuff at school than just facilitate learning, right? They are, they're collecting consent forms, they're doing behavior management, conflict resolution, taking attendance, they're having to volunteer at the school dance and they're coaching basketball and, you know, they're doing the bottle drive and the poinsettia sales. Like they're walking the kids to the bus at the end of the day. Yeah, like, like teaching has come to encompass a practice that is much larger than just the facilitation of learning. And he was looking for an analog for that for, for students, right? And so he came out with this term studenting. So studenting is what students do in, in a school setting or even at home, but in a school context. Um, and at first he was really optimistic about this, right? He was, he was like, they are studying, right? They're collaborating, they're seeking each other out off, off t- like outside of school hours. They're reflecting on the things that they have learned. They're doing their homework. Like he was, he was, he had this optimistic view of what studenting was. And then, and then he it turned out he got a little bit more jaded as he started to see the reality of this because it turned out that most of what the students were doing was groveling for marks and finding ways to game the system and setting goals that were actually antithetical to learning. They were more interested in achieving grades than, than, than in learning and so on. So, so I adopted this term to sort of encapsulate what is it that students are doing in this setting, right? So I define studenting as studenting is what students do in a learning situation, some of which may be learning, but not all of it. So through this work in these, these 15 classrooms that I had doubled back into, I documented the behaviors of the student and it kind of coalesced into five behaviors, as you mentioned. Some are, are, are just slacking. They're just off task. They're playing on their cell phone, talking to their friends, staring out the window. They're just visibly off task. That's like, that's kind of the one that everyone would guess, right? They're passing notes. They're like, they're like the stereotypical, just not doing the thing. Right. And it's like, I would talk to teachers if I was watching their lesson and go, so how'd it go? And they're like, oh, yeah, that was a great lesson. Other than the three jokers at the back who were off task, everything was going well. And I think every teacher has stories of this. And I think every, every adult can reflect on a time when either they were or they had a friend who was the slacker in the back of the room. Right. But there was more subtle ones. There was stalling. So stalling. Can I go to the bathroom? I need to get a drink of water. I forgot something in my locker. I'm going to sharpen my pencil. In fact, I'm going to sharpen all my pencils, both ends, right? So stalling, what we have to understand about stalling is that it's an off-task behavior. But unlike slacking, it's a permissible, it's a legitimate off-task behavior. Going to the bathroom is off-task, but it's allowed, as opposed to playing on a cell phone or reading a comic book, right? So... And the reason these are different is that stallers care deeply what the teacher thinks of them. So rather than be visibly off task, they hide behind a facade of legitimate off task behavior. But it's, it's interesting. It sounds like from your interviews with these students in understanding their mind state, you 
it sounds like you felt like they were just, they also didn't understand. Like they didn't know how to do the problem in often, oftentimes. Yeah, often that's the case, but often they don't want to do the thinking as well, right? For many of the students, these sorts of behaviors were rewarded because eventually the teacher, like one of the data points my, we found was that when a teacher asks students to do something, they give them four minutes and 22 seconds on average. I love that number, four minutes. So all these things you observed, there was just this like, it basically is about four minutes to do this problem. Whatever. Yeah, the, whatever the I'm going to give you four minutes, four minutes, 22 seconds, and then I'm going to clap my hands and we're going to go over it. And like, so if a student succeeds in slacking or stalling for those four minutes and 22 seconds, they're still going to get the answer but they didn't have to do any work for it. Nor thinking. Nor thinking. And they're going to get, not only are they going to get the answer, they're going to get the best answer. Right? Then we had the fakers. So the fakers are the ones who are pretending to work. Right? They, and, and they kind of come in two flavors. There's what I call the overactors. These are the ones who like, like you can spot them a mile away. They're they're just staring pensively into space and pondering. They go, they strike the you know the thing. You have your hand on you have your finger on your chin here. You're very you're hamming it up if people could see you. Yeah. Yeah. And um and you spot them a mile away, but there's this more subtle one. Like these are like the Academy Awards worthy students who are like there's absolutely no chance you would spot them. The only reason I could see it was because they're very good at projecting this facade towards a teacher. I was behind the facade so I could see it. I stood behind one girl who was writing away. She's diligently working through the tasks, flipping a page in the textbook every once in a while, checking something on the whiteboard and working away. And there's nothing coming out of her pencil, right? She even picked up an eraser and erased what wasn't there and then continued to not write. Like, good luck spotting that, right? And fakers like stallers care what you think of them. But rather than hide behind a facade of legitimate off-task behavior, they hide behind a facade of on-task behavior. But it's just a facade, right? And then we have the mimickers. So the mimickers are the ones who, they're not actually thinking for themselves. They're just reproducing what has been shown to them, right? So the teacher showed me how to do this. I'm just going to emulate that exactly, exactly the way it was. Put this number there, put that number there, cross multiply, get the answer, done. And now I can do three or four of those, right? So, so the mimickers are, you know, the problem with mimicking is that mimicking is not learning. Um, it's not thinking. In fact, it's, it's not a learning behavior. Speaking to the students, mimicking is actually a production behavior. It's what students do to produce for the teacher the things that the teacher asked for in exchange for praise, gold stars, and grades, right? It's just, it's just a production behavior. And, and it doesn't actually facilitate long-term growth. Well, just to be devil's advocate, like don't, um, don't, isn't it sometimes, aren't there some things that when you, to copy the process of a math, um, you know, to like learn a certain time multiplication or division. Don't you need to just copy the same mimic, the same procedure over and over? Yeah. So this is an interesting question, right? Because there was some really interesting things in the data. One of which was I would ask teachers, I would say, so what do you like, do you want your students to mimic? And they're like, no, 
maybe a little bit at the beginning, a little bit of fake it till you make it. But overall, I want them to understand. I want them to see connections. I do not want my students to mimic. And then we would interview the students and the students would go, he definitely wants us to mimic. And, and so there is this, this misunderstanding. And the reason is because students don't listen to what we say. They listen to what we do. And if our teaching incentivizes and rewards mimicking, then what the students hear is that we want them to mimic. Um, but to your question, isn't that what we want sometimes, right? Like this idea, I said it earlier, and some teachers say this, I want them, you know, fake it till they make it. Like that's a good starting point. I want them to understand in the end, but what our research actually showed was less than 4% of students were actually willing to move beyond mimicking once they started mimicking. Wow, 96% stay mimicking. Yeah, if they started mimicking, they would not move beyond that strategy. So, so like this idea of fake it till you make it is good in theory, but it's not what's happening. And any teacher who's listening to this will recognize these words. So I didn't do question 13 on the homework quiz because you didn't show us how. Right? So like it's like the ones you've shown me how to do, I will, I will mimic. But the minute you, sh- you ask me to do something you haven't shown me how to do, I don't know how to do that one. Right. And we've we've subscribed to this idea that if we start with mimicking, that's going to build the proficiency and then the conceptual will come after it. But mimicking is mimicking is like a highly addictive drug. Right. Once they once they start mimicking and they start being productive through mimicking. And this is one of the problems with mimicking is that it has really high short term success rate. You get the gold star. Yes. If I mimic now, I'll be productive now. If I mimic tonight, I'll be productive tonight. Right? And because of that, it's highly appealing and highly addictive to students. Right? The problem is that 100% of students, 100% of students who use mimicking as a strategy will eventually start to struggle at their inability to remain productive through, through mimicking. And it happens to every single student. At some point, mimicking runs out. And when that happens, students don't go from an A to a B. They go from an A to a D because they haven't actually learned the things that they need to learn to set them up for success. They've actually just sort of short-term successes are not actually accumulating to long-term gain. Right? And... Wow, I'm I'm a little speed. I'm a, it's like a pretty high um, accusation, really, right? Because it's like a very common practice, especially in math, but in other fields too. I think, but to to I think we can all probably relate to being the student who's doing the mimicking. I think we can all relate to students who who were the mimickers. Not all, but many. But I think we can all also relate to the day that it ran out. Everybody who's listening to this who was a mimicker, I don't want you to think about the times you were successful with it. Think about the time it stopped working and how, how, how you were struggling all of a sudden, maybe for the first time, and how that just you just fell behind and then you could never catch up. And, and then all of a sudden you were tracked into other courses and so on and so forth. It happens to everyone. I teach at a university. There is a percentage of students who manage to get all the way through high school through mimicking, 
right? And, and if, we t- if we look at, let's look at the top 20% of the students graduating from your high school, right? They're going to have choices. They may not, like, they don't have unlimited choices, but they have choices. They, they're going to be accepted to more than one institution, and they're going to have choices. And 50% of them are going to have to repeat their first year calculus course. Yeah, there's a lot of data on this. Yeah. And it's because, boom, the mimicking ran out. Right? And these are students with top marks, and all of a sudden they're having to repeat this course because the mimicking ran out. It just becomes untenable at some point. Right? Now, is that to say that there aren't things in life that can be learned through mimicking? And, and you know, like, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get into that debate because um, I'm sure there are. But just because some things can be learned through mimicking, does that mean all things should be learned through mimicking? And you're saying your data has shown that this is a faulty practice as as applied to the fields you're looking at. Yes. Right. Within the context of mathematics, mimicking has short-term success, long-term failure. One of the things about education is education is not known for its long-range planning. Right. Like at institutional levels, they lay out curriculum with trajectories and so on and so forth. But as a teacher, I'm teaching these students for 10 months. Right. And I want to get them through and I want to do what's best for them for these 10 months. I'm not really thinking about how that's necessarily going to affect them three years from now. I think the interesting thing is you mentioned five types. We've gone through four. There's one that there is one that's working. Yeah, well, uh, about 20% of the students um, were doing. So here's the thing. 20% of the students were not slacking, stalling, faking, or mimicking. Okay. Okay. So what were they doing? It's hard to say exactly what they were doing, but I can tell you this. If there was thinking going on, that's where it was happening. Right? It's kind of like sculpting right like sculpting in stone is like i'm going to remove all the things that are not and see what's left i see <laughs> and so somewhere in there is the statue um and and so yeah so and it's interesting too i mean there is a where yeah how, how do you know you're probably still trying to unpack like what it is when it works like what it is the learning what, what well is there so there's learn? so this is not my result but there's this sort of adage in education research that like Education always works for 20% of students. It doesn't matter. 20% of our students are going to learn despite our teaching, not because of our teaching. Um, and and they're going to they're going to thrive in any educational setting. They're just that's just who they are. They're autodidactic. They they're going to learn. Maybe curious. Maybe something in some you know internal motivation is driving them. And this is. And, you know, one of, the, one of the dangers is, is to hold that up as, a, as evidence of success, right? It's correlative, not causal, right? So we got to just be careful with that. Okay, so do, you've been doing this for a long time, but I, we're going to get into like, then you try to experiment on what might work. So, but, but at that, think back to that time where you've done this research, you have this, you know, insight. You probably were hoping maybe you were wrong, that there's no thinking going on. You prove it. You end up proving your hypothesis in your research. But what, how did that make you feel? Like, were you, I mean, uh, I don't know. Like, it's a pretty damning assessment of a, a very large 
teaching operation around the world, really, certainly in the in your country and the U.S. Uh. So, yes and no, right? Like, I don't want to, like, one of the things I want to come back to is, first of all, these were still good teachers that I was looking at, right? These were still well-respected individuals in classrooms. They knew their content. They knew their kids. They knew that they cared that the kids got through the content, right? They were... Nobody was falling through the cracks. They were doing the best that they could within a structure that wasn't necessarily designed to lead to, to the kinds of successes that we wanted, right? And by we, I mean the system. Like the system wants students to be successful. These teachers wanted students to be successful. Um, so yeah, it's damning and it's sort of, you know, now here's, now I have the problem. I've seen there's a problem. I've confirmed there's a problem. I've named the problem. And now what do we do about it? Well, one of the things to really come back to is in the process of identifying this problem, I identified another phenomenon. And that phenomenon was that, and I, I mentioned this earlier, there is incredibly stable classroom norms and routines and structures in, in, within the system. Every classroom I went into looked more like every other classroom than it looked different, right? And I, and I, and I picked 40 as my number because I was hoping to see a wide variety of teaching practices. I didn't. I saw the same teaching routines. And then as I dig into the history of education, I come to realize that not only, like ironically, it's not just that these are common now. It's like these are common forever, right? Education has been around for 170 years, right? The whole time, students have been sitting, the teacher has been standing. The students are writing on paper, the teachers are writing on the blackboard or the whiteboard, right? Like, what's changed? And, and coming to this realization that everywhere I go, students are not thinking, and everywhere I go, I see these incredibly stable classroom routines kind of actually gave me the starting point, which was we're going to have to break some of these norms to get students to think. And like when I realized that, it was like, okay, this sounds exciting, right? Like realizing that this isn't, this isn't a problem that's going to be solved by finding one small little key that's going to change everything. And it's just a small change. You know, for so long, we've, we've viewed progress as incremental change. This is going to require a complete rework, right? And that's exciting to do. And there, I think this one example, I know you did a lot of things when you started to go try to try some teaching practices and see if they, you could get ones that worked. Um, my favorite was when you described you went, you set up a, a room with no furniture and had the students and teacher come in. Tell us about that. So early on in the research, so like, well, what we realized was we're going to have to break norms, right? And that kind of became the mandate. Break norms, see if it improves student thinking. Can we get more students thinking? Can we get them thinking for longer? And now we just started. We started disrupting normative structures in the classroom. And we were trying anything and everything. And one of the anythings and everythings we tried was, let's take the furniture out of the room. Let's see what effect that has. And it was, it was almost a lark, right? Like, but it was, it was this fun rapid prototyping period of time where it's just like, we're just going to try a bunch of different things. It's almost like a performance art. It's like, there's just no, no furniture. You've just got the, 
Like the kids come in, there's no furniture, no desk, no teacher desk, no file cabinet, no student desk, nothing. Just blank. Well, and we didn't really expect that much out of that. But we just, you know, one of the things that, that's, that's problematic in a lot of research is we're trying to research things that are standing still. And it's much easier to research things that are in motion. So, like, we got to just poke the bear here. And taking all the furniture out pokes the bear. And now we got something's, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's, something's going to happen. And now we can, we can start to research what's happening, right? Well, here's the problem. The thinking improved. The, the no furniture worked, is what you're saying. Yeah, no furniture worked. We had more students thinking and thinking for longer. And it took, it took like a year and a half for me to understand why that was. And this was the nature of the research. I was doing something that I call results-first research, which I, I, I call it that, which is I'm looking for reproducible empirical results, and then I'll try to understand why it works. So I'm not going to try to throw a bunch of theory at things that aren't working. Let's find something that works, that consistently works, and then try to understand why it works. So we got this. Okay, this is working. Take the furniture out. It works. Uh, for those of you who are listening, I don't recommend taking out the furniture, right? Like, like teachers don't like teaching in classrooms without furniture. Yeah. So spoiler alert, the book is not about taking away all the furniture. So yeah, right. So the teachers hated it, you said. Yeah, yeah. Teachers hated it. We're kind of like, teachers are like hoarders, right? They, you know, it took me a year and a half to get that extra table at the back of the room. There's no way I'm giving that up now. Um, <clears throat> but it's, and, and this actually raised an interesting tension in the research, which because it was so participatory and collaborative, right, there was this, like, one of the things I learned is there's no point coming out with solutions that teachers don't want to implement, right? Like, we don't need another social engineered solution that nobody wants to do. It has to be something that's within reach, within feasibility, and within approachability by teachers. But at the same time, I'm not going to use their comfort level to limit the things that we explore. But, you know, we, it just all has to work together. So why did it work? Yeah, I was about to ask. So yeah, why would no furniture have any good things? It, it actually comes from a theory from the 1970s. It's a theory called systems theory. So we have to think of like, assist, think of any social situation, any sort of in, uh, situation that we engage in, whether it's uh, scouts or brownies or a, uh, a ski club or a track club or a book club that you're in, a classroom, any place that has an organization, any structure. Think of that as a system. So what is a system? A system is a collection of, of uh, agents and forces. So in a classroom, who are the agents, right? There's a teacher and there's the students. Now, what are the forces? Well, the teacher is applying force to the students and the students are applying forces on the teacher, right? They're through their resistance or compliance and so on, right? Uh, but the students also apply forces on each other. And I, I don't mean every student applies a force on every student, but some students apply forces on some students, right? And, and so on and so forth. But they're not the only agents in the system. We also got colleagues pushing, putting forces on the system and then parents and administrators and then the curriculum. And like, but so what you get is you have all these, these, these agents and they act like nodes and then you have these forces and they act like edges. 
and they're pushing on each other. And then, and when you have all these forces and agents pushing on each other, eventually the system reaches a stable point, a stasis, right? Like it, it stabilizes and everything is sort of in harmony with each other. That doesn't mean that the forces have disappeared. They're, they're still there, but everything's sort of balancing each other out, right? Now, how do we change a system? Right? Because the one, there's a couple of things that we know from the research on systems theory. Number one is when you, when you try to change the system, the system will defend itself. Because you have all these forces that have now reached a stable point. If you now move one of these agents or introduce a new agent or increase a force from one of these agents, the system wants to restabilize. And the most, with all those forces and all those agents, it's more likely to restabilize back to the way it was. And, and this is what we were seeing in the students, in these studenting behaviors we talked about earlier. When students, studenting behaviors are just their habits. That's how they behave. And when a student walks into a classroom that looks like every other classroom they've ever walked into, they're going to invoke those same habits, right? If they're a slacker in this lesson, they're going to be a slacker in that lesson, right? Like they're, they are constant in this regard. So they bring these habits into the room. And then the room pretty much rewards that because it's got its own forces and those forces have, are, are more like every other room and so on and so forth. So how do you achieve change in any setting if that's the case? Well, the way you affect change is you have to overwhelm the system. You either have to apply a single force or multiple forces in a way that overwhelms the stability of the system. So the system has to restabilize into a new form. And what taking the furniture out did was it was an overwhelming force, right? When those students walked into the classroom, this didn't look like anything they'd seen before. So they left their habits at the door and then they were willing to bring, to cr construct new habits inside this setting. Right. And it was and, and it, it was just this overwhelming force. It wasn't a small change. It was a big change. OK, so you you keep at it and you, I, you know, we, we've already spoiled that it's not an empty room that you're pitching. So um, but you did end up coming up with some practices and you, there's many of them, but a couple core practices that seem like the foundation to what you do now. Um, and so you do end up recommending to change the furniture over what's normal. What are the, what are the main aspects of what you call the thinking classroom, right? This is the, yeah. So what we ended up doing was pursuing this change across a number of variables. And the variables we chose were sort of the core classroom routines that every teacher does, right? Like every teacher uses tasks. And we all know that there are good tasks and there are bad tasks. So let's explore that a little bit more. Every teacher uses collaborative groups to some extent. So that became a variable. Can we do this? Can we find a way to, to form collaborative groups in a way that actually promotes more thinking than other ways? Students got to work somewhere. We're going to answer questions. We're going to have students do notes and homework. And we're going to do formative and summative assessment. Like we do all these things. So these became our variables. And then when we experimented on these and trying to find practices that actually didn't just encourage thinking, they supported thinking, they initiated thinking, they actually sustained and necessitated thinking, what were some of these 
transformative things? Well, for one, the workspace. What was the optimal workspace? Well, before I tell you that, let me tell you what the worst workspace was. The worst workspace was having students sit and write in their notebook. That one performed worse through a metric of thinking than any other workspace. What was optimal? Having students work in their groups at vertical whiteboards. Standing around a white, a standing up, a typical whiteboard like a, or a small one. Except it didn't have to be a whiteboard. It just had to be vertical and erasable, right? So like a window would work, the side of a file cabinet would work. Um, a vinyl picnic table covered staple to a bulletin board worked. Blackboards worked, right? Like it just had to be vertical and erasable, okay? And you can ask me why those are important in a minute. Um, but they didn't stand there alone. They stood in their groups. Except, So what was the optimal way to form a group? Well, it turns out that strategically constructing the groups, like we see in a lot of elementary schools, turned out to be a disaster. That was not conducive to thinking. Likewise, having students self-select their groups was, was a dumpster fire. That was not conducive to thinking. Um, what was the optimal way to form groups? Random. And it wasn't good enough that it was random. It had to be visibly random. They had to believe they had to believe it was random, that it wasn't like secretly constructed by a teacher. Right. It had to they had to see that it was random and it had to be frequent. About once every 60 to 75 minutes, we re-randomized. Okay. Uh, so and the task we give them had to be a thinking task. So what's a thinking task? Well, before we do that, let's talk about what a not thinking task is. So a not thinking task is a task where they already know how to do it. Thinking is what we do when we don't know what to do. If we already know how to do it, it's not, it's not a thinking task. It's an exercise. Or busy work, I guess somebody might call it. Yeah. So a thinking task had to be something that they don't know how to do, which means they're going to have to think, they're going to get stuck. But it also means that we can't pre-teach them how to do it. Right? So here we have, in a thinking classroom, the students standing at the whiteboards in their random groups of three, one marker per group, working on these thinking tasks. Now, there's other subtleties. We, coming back to furniture, it turned out that, the, that if we're going to have furniture in the room, that there was an optimal furniture placement. And that furniture placement was that it had to be defronted. So there are four things that front a classroom, where the teacher's desk is, where the projector screen is, where the teacher stands and which way the desks face, the student's desk face. And in a heavily fronted classroom, the teacher desk is at the front, the projector screen is at the front, the teacher stands at the front, the students face the front. In a defronted classroom, we still have those four things. We can't get rid of them, but they're not geolocated in the same spot. They're spread out, right? So we may have a desk at the back of the room and a projector screen over on that side. Like it could still be at what used to be the front of the room, but the students' desks are facing every which way and the teacher stands in the middle. Like, like it just has to be defronted. And then, and then it goes from there. There's just so many different nuances to this. And that, by the way, produced thinking classrooms. We all of a sudden, like overnight, we went from 20% of students thinking to, for 20% of the time to 80% of students thinking for 80% of the time. So I'm going to do something which is going to be an experiment for me as a podcaster. I'm going to show you a video because there you have a lot of fans on 
the social media and people, teachers trying your, read you, they read your book, they do it, and then they share their, their, their implementation. So I, I am just going to show you a couple minutes of it. The, the trick is, yeah, this is the trick is it's a visual thing that we're doing, but you're going to, you're going to describe what you're seeing. I don't even think I'm, I'm not going to turn the sound on. So here we go. I'm going to share my screen if I can figure that out. Um, all right. You're going to see this and then you could see it, right? All right. I've got the mute. If it's muted. So we've got a group of fourth graders here. And can you describe what you're seeing as we do this, as we watch? Yeah. So there's a group of three standing at a whiteboard. Uh, I think what they're trying to figure out is how many ways to make a dollar using nickel, dimes, and quarters. Um, And this group of three is trying to document and track all the different ways. Uh, One student has a marker, but the other students are, are helping that student decide what it is that needs to be written. Um, and they're, they're looking around the room at other student solutions and, and trying to figure out how they have organized it. And that's not cheat. That's not no, cheating. no, no. That's, that's what we call knowledge mobility. And what's interesting about this is they don't steal the answers. What they steal is an idea. And then they make the idea their own and they use that idea to move themselves forward. And here in this one group, I see a student sitting. There's two students standing. One has the pen and is pointing intently, but they're all looking at the whiteboard. One is sitting in the back, but but not sitting in a distant distance. Distance. No, no, she's she's got an active stance. And we, I don't know the circumstance by that. We don't want the students sitting, but that student could have had an injury. Uh, they could have, you know, they're still kids, which means they're going to try to get away with stuff. It looks like she's about to get back up, just to be fair. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then, and, and you know, some of these groups in this example are two, but most are three. Why three? Um, so it turned out that three was the optimal number. Um, and it actually, we found that result like within three months that, that when we had groups of three, we heard three voices. When we had groups of four, we heard three voices. When we had groups of five, we heard two voices, right? So when the groups got too big, the voices actually started becoming silenced. Um, Groups of two, we heard two voices, but they ran out of brain really fast. Um, Interesting. They run out of ideas. There just isn't enough diversity in those groups. Um, And this comes from a theory called complexity theory. But nonetheless, it's um, what's what we found was groups of three were optimal. If you can't have perfect groups of three, we're going to have groups of two. I want to comment on what we just saw in that video there, in that portion of the video there, was all of a sudden we have two groups. Actually, it might have been three groups. No, there's two groups who are starting to talk to each other about how they figured something out. So one of the groups has gotten stuck and they're seeking some advice from another group. But what's interesting is there's another group that's kind of listening in as well. Um, And again, this is what we call knowledge mobility. The smartest person in the room is the room. There's a lot of knowledge in the room. Let's get that knowledge moving around the room rather than uh, making the teacher the only keeper of knowledge in the room. This is just a beautiful piece here where the kids are, are, are sharing their expertise here. And what it does is it just... It lifts up kids, right? Kids feel empowered by this. 
And if you look at that video, like I, it's the audience can't see this, but you know, that was a video of a very diverse looking group of students, right? There was, there was a lot of diversity in that space and a lot of students whose voices in some settings are silenced are now all of a sudden being leaders. And this is what we want, right? We want students to, to celebrate and be celebrated for the knowledge that they bring to the setting. So yeah, thank you for, for hearing me with that. I'll share the link to that example with people who listen so you can go, when you're done listening to the podcast, go watch it. But um, <laughs> so, so we, you, I, there's so much, yeah. The, and I didn't even ask you why, um, why does the, wait, what was the question we were, you were, you were saying like, why does, yeah. Why vertical? Yeah. Why does it need to be, why does that matter so much? Erasable, I kind of get, but why vertical? Erasable just makes it safer to try things, right? And risk is a barrier to thinking. So we want them to try, but why vertical? Because like, that's inconvenient. Like if it were, like if we could just like it took me three months to teach them to stay in their desks and now I've got to get them out of their desks like oh my goodness right and and then never mind the, all the wall space I got to free up to do this but it was a game changer like I mean like a real game changer so what is it about vertical um, well number one when it's vertical it, the work is oriented to the same way for every student. When they're sitting, someone's always looking sideways or upside down, which means that the student who's looking at it head on is they're kind of the owner of the work. When, when you see that video, you can't tell who owns that work. Like they all own that work. They're all oriented towards it the same way. Uh, when it's vertical, they can see each other's work. And we talked about that already. And we call this knowledge mobility. Um, they can get access to more ideas, which helps them move forward. Remember, they're in a thinking task, which means they don't know what to do. And they start to claw their way forward. And then they, they, sometimes they run out of resources and they need to get more resources. And there's resources in the room to get. So that's good. When it's vertical, I'm a better teacher. I don't, I don't have to wait for that quiz on Friday to see who understands it. I can see right now who's getting it. And then I can intervene right now. Right? I... And I can intervene just with those students who need intervention. I don't need to let them do the wrong thing for six days before I catch it, right? I'm just a better teacher. And these are all really good reasons, but they were all eclipsed by an interesting piece of data. And this is one of my favorite pieces of data. And it took over two years to get it. Um, it's not that standing is so good. It's that sitting is so bad. And it's not like sitting is the new smoking bad, right? Like it's not like that sort of thing. It turns out that when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. And the further they sit from the teacher, the more anonymous they feel. And when students feel anonymous, they disengage. And that's both a conscious and a subconscious act, right? And, and what standing up did was it took away their anonymity. And they didn't disengage, right? Like in that video, those kids are thinking. They are fully engaged, right? I can't guarantee that that would have happened if they were sitting. And if you're listening to this podcast, just think back to the last time you went to a professional development workshop, right? Think about that you were in this room and you were sitting down and you felt anonymous. And in fact, you may have put yourself in the back row of this room so that you could feel anonymous, so that you could disengage, 
right? This is not a phenomenon that's unique to kids. This is human nature, right? Yeah. Yeah, you feel like, yeah, you kind of feel like maybe you'll think about some other things because you disappear into the woodwork. Catch up on the soccer scores. Update my Facebook profile. Do some online shopping. Grading. I'm sure none of our listeners have ever done that. No, 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 no. But I'm sure they know people who have done that. they've, They've heard of it. Um, so these thinking tasks, I don't want to get too much into this. Um, uh, these are actually also a little bit hard to, to follow just by audio in a way, uh, cause you want to reread them, but I, I, there are so many great examples in your book of an example, but I'm gonna give one because I do think I hate to be so abstract, but a problem that would get someone thinking, right? So, um, here's one of them that is for middle school, um, in one of your chapters, I'll read it. I have a four minute egg timer. And a seven-minute egg timer, the kind you turn over and let the sand run through. So you got a four-minute egg timer and a seven-minute egg timer. Two of these sand hourglass things. I can picture them. Can I use these, these two, to cook a nine-minute egg? If so, how long will someone have to wait for their egg? Yeah. Well, okay. So first of all, love that task. Um but what's problematic about that task is part of it is representation. Like how, okay, I can write four and I can write seven, but then how do I start tracking what's happening over time here, right? Like, like how do I track that, okay, the four-minute egg timer has run out. There's three minutes left in the seven-minute timer. Uh, what do I do now, I, right? Like I turn the four-minute back over and... And then I can track like, so it's about representation and that's something that kids struggle with. And then they see someone else's representation and they like that one. So they start using it and that liberates them to start to think more about the problem. And what's also beautiful about this problem, if the listeners are solving at home, is you will solve it. You will come up with a way to cook a nine minute egg using a four and seven minute timer. And when you have solved that, the question is, how long did I have to wait for that egg? Right. And then when you tell me it's whatever it is, I'm going to say, I don't want to wait that long. Can you do it faster? And so on. Right. Like it's just going to it's just going to go like this. It can lead to more thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's the nature of these tasks is one of the hard and fast principles of a thinking classroom is nobody gets to be done. Right. Like in a normative classroom, what we what we tend to do is we tend to assign the same amount of work to everybody and then everybody takes a different amount of time to do it. In a thinking classroom, we all work for the same amount of time, but we get through different amounts of work. And there's a whole bunch of equity implications around that, but it also makes sure that everybody feels safe and, and so on. And, it's, and, it, and it creates a, more, a space more conducive to thinking. But what this task is, is what we call a non-curricular task. So a non-curricular task is a task that is clearly mathematical, but it doesn't necessarily map to the standards that I'm teaching at the time. So what's the value of doing a non-curricular task? Well, our research showed that using non-curricular tasks is an excellent way to kickstart the process of building a thinking classroom, right? Like if we're all of a sudden going to do random groups and and having the students work on vertical whiteboards and I'm not going to answer their questions as much, and I'm going to put them into all these spaces. Whew, 
it'd be nice to not also try to hit a standard, right? Like, and it's nice for both the students and the teacher to not have that pressure of trying to hit an outcome when we're first starting these encounters. And our research showed that students need to have four to six experiences with these non-curricular tasks as a way to start to build a culture of thinking before we shift into content, right? Now, and these non-curricular tasks feel fun. Like, they're just fun. The kids are enjoying it. The video you showed is, how many ways can we make a dollar using only nickels, dimes, and quarters? Those kids were engaged. They was fun, right? That doesn't really map to their curriculum necessarily. Right. How realistic can people do this in a day-to-day? Yeah. But once we've passed through those four to six experiences, now we go to the curriculum. Because what we've done now is we've built engaged students. Now the tasks don't have to be so engaging. So what do we do for curriculum? Well, pick, you know, like open up a textbook, close your eyes and point at any page at any task and you have a curricular thinking task. Right? Asking students to add two-digit numbers is a great thinking task. Until you show them how to do it, then it's a mimicking task. Asking students to graph a, a parabola, solve a system of linear equations, factor a quadratic, multiply decimals, add fractions, all of these things are amazing thinking tasks. Asking students in kindergarten, what are the three numbers that come before seven, eight, nine? is an amazing thinking task. Until we show them how to do it, then it's a mimicking task. The difference between curricular thinking tasks and curricular non-thinking tasks is really where you position them in relation to where you do the direct instruction. If you show them how to do it first, you just suck the thinking out of it. So 95% of the time in the thinking classroom, we are doing content. And by the way, when students are thinking, they tear through content. Like every time I go in and do a lesson uh, with students, we're, we're moving through two, three lessons worth of content in, in one lesson. Like when students are not thinking, everything is difficult. It takes a long time and they don't learn it. But when they're thinking, anything is possible. So honestly, when I was reading through your book, it made me think of we, you know, a lot of listeners may have heard the the podcast sold a story that was done by a reporter at APM Reports, but it, it, there's been other coverage of this idea in in early literacy teaching and how ineffective a popular strategy is in the literacy landscape. Totally different setting, different kinds of issues than what we're talking about with what you've what we've talked about so far. But there was the the at core. There's like advice out there or a system of, of doing teaching that's ineffective, but it's happening anyway. What we've talked about so far is that there's an even bigger system of teaching math at schools all over that is ineffective and people are doing it anyway. How, I mean, what is, how do you look at getting change? I mean, do you, do you just put out your book and hope people change or where are you, what is your... Or, or is it, or is it maybe not, maybe it doesn't work for everything. And so it's a limited, um, you know, you found some limited things that happen. And so some teachers can use it and, and that's good for those teachers. Well, so, okay. So like, I'm not the one to talk about like, how do we make global systemic change here? Because like I've done the research, I have these tools that kind of systemic change has to, has to, in my opinion, start with teachers and then trickle up to systems. Why, why that way? 
because we've proven the other way doesn't work. And why I mean we, I mean everybody knows it doesn't work, right? Like the kiss of death on anything in, man, in education is to mandate it from the top down, right? Like it has to come, like teaching practice is incredibly personal, right? And, it, and it's also incredibly uh, private. So like we can mandate whatever we want, but once a teacher's in the room with their students, they're going to do what they think is best for their students, right? And, and so it has to come authentically from teacher interest. So what's, what, what's happening with thinking classrooms? Okay, so here's some interesting things. Book has sold 250,000 copies, right? That's unusual that's a, that's for an education lot. book, right? It's now in 11 languages, that's unusual for an education book in, in such a short time span. Um, it's, there are 35 Facebook groups dedicated to supporting teachers implementing thinking classrooms, none of which was started by me. There's, there, and the main one just surpassed 50,000 members. Right? These are teachers helping teachers. They are creating these communities where they can support each other. This is happening from the ground up. I'm currently at NCTM and NCSM, the, the two big national conferences for teachers and leaders in math education. And like everyone is coming up to me and saying, we're doing a book study, we're doing this, we're seeing this change and so on and so forth. I'm not, I'm not the one who's calling them up and saying, you have to do this. And you're not selling, you're not selling them a package of tools to do. I mean, you're selling a book, but. Well, my publisher is selling a book. What I'm offering are th ways that teachers can achieve the things that they want to achieve, right? Like, I think every teacher wants to be a good teacher. And every teacher has been tipping at this windmill for a long time. And they've been frustrated by the ineffectiveness of the things they're trying because they're trying to implement 21st century teaching goals inside of a 19th century classroom, right? And, and what Building Thinking Classroom does is it gives teachers tools that they can use to sort of achieve the goals that they have for themselves and for their students. Um, and I think it's, it's having that positive effect. And I'm, I'm out there trying to support it as much as I can. I'm doing this podcast. I'm going to conferences. I'm, I'm going into districts. I'm going into classroom everywhere I can, right? I'm, I'm trying, I'm produ producing more books to support teachers. I'm, I'm out there trying to support but I'm not the only one. And that's the thing that I think is so important here is that building thinking classrooms is not my dance that only I hold the choreography to anymore. It lives out there in the teaching community and the teachers are, are, are using it and problem solving with it and figuring it out and making it their own. And I think that's, I think that's how systemic change happens um, is teachers professional judgment and professional autonomy being being the lead on this change and you're not like asking a school system to buy your curriculum to give it to everybody and say this is the thing which is the way a lot of school reform has happened as you know or not happened so you you purposely are not going that strategy well, okay, so building thinking classrooms is not a curriculum, first of all. It's a pedagogy. It's a, it's a framework for helping teachers enact whatever curriculum that they have to work with, right? Curriculum is mandated. Pedagogy is professional. And so this helps teachers enact whatever curriculum content that they have to get through. Um, 
And, you know, like, I respect teachers' professional autonomy. Like, this is, I think teachers should have the, 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 the professional freedom to judge for themselves what's going to work for them. And if this is if this is going to work for them, I I'm there trying to support it, right? I don't want to mandate this because I don't believe that mandating things pedagogy is an effective way to change pedagogy. So it's growing organically, like anything that goes viral. You can find some skeptics online. One teacher wrote on a Reddit channel, "He is pushing so hard to revolutionize and change." but doesn't have achievement data, just engagement. When I asked Peter Lilladal about this, he acknowledged that he has not published research on whether this approach leads students to earn higher marks on standardized tests, since his focus is engagement. But he says he has heard from hundreds of teachers who have reported improvements on test scores. I asked him what he thinks the biggest obstacle is for his technique spreading even more widely. Um... Well, okay, so I, so, so far, like, like obstacle is sort of a funny word to use on the heels of the success that we're seeing, but that's not to say that there aren't obstacles. Um, so I'm of the opinion that the most powerful evidence for leveraging change is the evidence that a teacher sees within their own classroom, right? Like my book has data in it, it has stories in it, but that's, that's my data and my stories. It's when a teacher tries it and they see success in their room. And I don't mean the sort of, I tried it in October and 18 months from now I get the results from the standardized test and it worked kind of success. I mean like, I tried it on Monday and it worked on Monday. So I'm gonna try it on Tuesday, right? Like that level of evidence is the evidence that allows a teacher to move forward and sustain this. What are the barriers to this? I think, you know, curriculum has taken on a sort of interesting structure within the U.S. in particular is that it has, it's not just what to teach, it's also how to teach. So, so some curricula, some programs that are out there are very prescriptive for how things are supposed to happen. And the more prescriptive uh, a program is for teachers, the less room there is for them to exercise their own professional autonomy, right? And, and the less prescriptive it is, the more a curriculum is just about, a program is just about the what's we're going to teach, the more freedom a teacher has to implement their own, ver- their own brand of pedagogy. So I think a barrier to pedagogy, to professional autonomy in general, is the degree to which a curriculum or a program is prescriptive or not kind of in a box in some way yeah yeah and it's sort of like it's it's this fractal image right at different scales right like like when when teachers don't trust that students can learn without them being told how to do it 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 shapes a particular form of ineffective pedagogy but when curriculum designers or program designers don't trust that teachers can deliver content it 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 constructs a certain type of pedagogy that i believe is not effective the stakes we've shown are high and the um you know these systems that you're describing are such core to the whole teaching process at every level 
Um, and I suspect we will get to talk again because I feel like there are other questions we could go into. But thank you so much for taking this time and, um, and going through this with us and sharing your research. Oh, my pleasure. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we dig into big ideas and how education is changing. If you like the show, please help us spread the word about the Ed Surge Podcast and follow us wherever you listen. To see the video of this teaching practice in action and learn more background on the story, go to edsurge.com and click on the word podcast to find our show page. You can also sign up for our newsletters there to keep up with our work. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me online at jeffyoung.net or reach out to me at jeff at edsurge.com. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.